Heavenly Father, as we come to the point in the service where your word is read, we ask that you make us attentive, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. That you open us up in a way so that we receive your truth, your message, your grace, and we allow it to transform us from the inside out. Lord, we ask for your blessing on the reading and on the hearing of your word, and that your Holy Spirit will be present and alive here among us, and that these words as they are read, that they will, they will make their way into our hearts and begin to transform us into a more Christ-like people. Bless this time that we have in the presence of each other and in the presence of your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53, verse, through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up. And said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We have a broken breaker, the reason the the sanctuary is half lit today. Um, It's... uh, Somewhat appropriate, I think, is this is the first Sunday in Lent, a season where we think of such dark things as our mortality and our sin and all, and we wait for the light of Easter, and here we are sitting in half dark. Um, The microphone thing, I can't theologically explain. The microphone doesn't work either. But uh, John Wesley was about this tall. He was four foot something. And he would preach on the English countrysides uh, to thousands of people, sometimes for two or three hours at a time. And, uh, and of course, that was before the invention of the microphone. So I figured if he could do it for several hours, then I could do it for uh, a little while today. But if, if you have trouble hearing me, just let me know, and I'll try to boom it out just a little bit louder. Uh, we're, we're still going through the Gospel of John Uh, We've been doing this for some weeks now, and we've seen throughout the gospel that Jesus is very invitational. 
Jesus is constantly inviting whoever he's talking to to experience a new birth, a new, a new way of seeing things, a new identity, to experience new unexpected blessings, uh, new water, new bread, he calls himself. And, and, and it's very invitational. So it's appropriate that we continue with this series through Lent. Because Jesus, just as Jesus invites us into new life and new blessings, he is also inviting us to journey with him to the cross. Because the truth is, if we want to experience anything new, that means the old thing must die. Paul in the book of Romans says that just as we experience a death like his, we will experience a resurrection like his. But it's understood that in order to experience a new life in Christ, we have to let something else die. Now, I don't mean that God can be a God of destruction. That's not what I'm saying at all. God is a God of creation. It is sin that destroys. It is sin that kills. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You can look at... The, uh, the, the stories in the Old Testament and see that God is a God of creation, even when it appears otherwise. Most of you know the story of uh, uh, Noah and the flood, and, and God is, is upset with the world, and so this flood comes and it destroys everything, and, and Noah and his family and, and the animals on the ark are saved. And so you can look at that and say, well, look, there's a God of destruction. He destroyed half the earth. No, God saved Noah in his mercy and in his grace. And afterwards, he made a covenant that he would never destroy the whole earth with floods again. And he sent sent the dove with an olive branch. And he put a rainbow in the sky. And he said, these are signs of the covenant I'm making with you. And so even in the destruction, which was due to sin, God was making a covenant promising life. God is a God of creation. He is a God of new life. But we have to understand that the sin that is part of our own lives leads to death and destruction. And so we must flee from that. We must die to that before we die with that. The circle of life is something we all know about. We're born into this world. We live. Eventually one day we pass away. But as we pass away, more people are born into the world. There's a Disney movie, The Lion King, starts off with the song, The Circle of Life. Simba, the lion, is born. And Rafiki, the monkey, holds him up for everybody to see. Well, Simba's father, Mufasa, is killed in the movie. Simba eventually takes the throne himself, and the movie ends with his son being born. And again, the song playing, The Circle of Life. We know about the circle of life. You've heard me talk about a leaf. How it falls from a tree, a leaf dies, and it falls from a tree, and it falls to the ground, it decomposes, and it becomes the very soil that fertilizes the tree so that new leaves can bloom. We know that death brings new life. It's the way God works. But I'm not just talking about the natural order of things. I'm not just talking about the way nature regenerates. It's a spiritual thing as well. You can see it even in the life of the church. We have had uh, funerals here lately, more than I care to do. And we have had a a number of, of people leave us, and we have grieved over that. But we have also had people join us. 
And this is how God just regenerates, even in, in sadness and in sorrow. And I can think of no better picture of that than just a, a, a month or so ago, we said goodbye to Bobby Woldridge, a brother in Christ, a member of this church. And that same day that we said goodbye to him, his nephew asked me if we would baptize his son into the church. And we did that last week. You see, where the world will bring decay and destruction and death, God is always doing a new thing. He makes all things new. Jesus invites us to go with him so that we can experience his life. But part of going with him is going to the cross so that we can also experience and share in his death. And as we share in his death, we share in his resurrection. Lent is about acknowledging our mortality, but it's also about acknowledging the reason for our mortality, sin. But acknowledgement isn't enough. There must be a turning. There must be repentance. And that brings us to this passage. Now this passage has been preached many, many times in the past 2,000 years. And I've heard some great sermons on this passage. One, one way I've heard it interpreted or, or preached is that this is the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus and Jesus is able to outmaneuver them and make them look foolish when they were trying to make him look foolish. And, and it displays God's wisdom through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. I've also heard sermons on this where they say that, that the point here is Jesus says none of us are blameless and therefore none of us should be judging others. And I've heard people say, well, this passage talks, shows us that Jesus doesn't condemn where, where we are so quick to. All of those are great points. All of those are great lessons to take home. But I want to bring something else to mind today. I want to talk about something else that is in this passage. And that's that Jesus has a message to deliver and he delivers it to the Pharisees and scribes, and then he delivers it to the woman, and it's the same message for both of them. And that message is simply this. Let my grace free you from your past and transform your future. Now we see that he treats everybody here as equals. The Pharisees and the scribes, they come up to him, and they're being flattering. They call him teacher. This is the only time in the Gospel of John they call him teacher. But they're, 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 they're trying to trick him, and they do it with flattery. They come up to him, and he knows what they're up to, and he, he kneels down on the ground and starts drawing in the dirt. What he was drawing doesn't matter. The gesture was that he wasn't going to fall for their flattery. He wasn't going to, you know, grovel at their feet. He wasn't going to be, you know, just in awe of who they were because they were scribes and Pharisees. He was going to just draw in the dirt when they asked him a question. And they had to keep asking him. And then what does he do? It says he stands up and addresses them. He stands up and he talks to them. And then, when they go away, he, he goes back down and starts drawing in the dirt again. And then when he addresses the woman, what does he do? He stands up and addresses her. So we see here, he is treating them as equals. He is approaching them both the same way. He is showing respect for the woman that he showed to them, and, 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 and vice versa. But he's also giving them the same message about grace. To the Pharisees, he's saying, look at your own past 
and see if there is room for grace here in the present. And to the woman, he's saying, look at the grace that you have had in the present and let this grace change your future. He gives her the charge, go and sin no more. Now, his grace didn't come with conditions. He didn't say, I won't condemn you as long as you sin no more. No, he gave her that grace unconditionally. And then the grace in the present moment was meant to change her life, to change her future. Jesus invites both parties here to give up something, to die to something. For the scribes and the Pharisees, he's asking them to give up the way they have abused the law for so long, the way that they have used the law to judge and condemn others. And he's saying, step out of that. Step out of that old system. Die to the way that you have enslaved yourself to the use of the law for that purpose. And instead, recognize the way the law has condemned you and the way that you still stand here alive and well and obviously in God's grace. For the woman, he was asking her to die to her sin, to her adulterous ways. Give up that and allow this grace to change you going forward. This passage is not all about making one party look foolish or look stupid while, while granting grace or freedom to the other party. Jesus was giving the same message twice here. To everyone that was in attendance, he was giving the same message. We've talked in this series about how Jesus is invitational. He's inviting us into new things. He is inviting all of us through these passages to let go of the sin that is killing us, that is keeping us in bondage. He is inviting us to let go of the arbitrary ways in which we have used the law to condemn ourselves and to condemn others. He's inviting us to step out of the past and into this present moment where his perfect and sufficient grace is offered. We all like to imagine a good future for ourselves. We all want good things in the future. We like to think that better days are ahead, always. But we all know that in order to have a good future, we have to do something in the present to reach that. I remember an interview Jim Carrey did once with with Oprah Winfrey, where he was talking about before he made it as a comedian, he used to sit in his parked car above Los Angeles and he would look at the the city at night and he would just just dream to himself, "I, I want to be a part of this. I want to make it. I want to be successful. That was his dream. But he said after doing that, after sitting there in his car and thinking about it, he couldn't just go home and make a sandwich. He had to go home and do the work needed to change his future, to shape his future. All of us who long for a brighter future, for a better future, have to think about that future as we live in the present. We can let the past dictate our present. We can let the past dictate who we are now. Or we can allow God's grace in the present to form and shape our future. Jesus was essentially saying here to the scribes and to the Pharisees, in the past you've always used the law to condemn. And if you look at your own past, you will see where the law condemns you. 
But in this moment, you have the choice to allow grace to change you. And if you can recognize grace in your own life, show that grace to someone else. And as you do, your own life, your own future can be changed. Just as I was telling the children during the children's sermon, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. But that doesn't make sense if we don't forgive. What we are saying is grant us grace and then allow us to take that grace and and change the way we see other people. Let that grace shape our future. And then to the woman, he's saying, grace has blotted out your transgression. And from this moment on, you can allow that grace to transform you. So that you can no longer be enslaved to your past, but you can become who God intends you to be. For every invitation that Jesus extends to us, whether it's new life, new identity, new blessings, whatever it is, He's offering us the opportunity to step into a new experience, new facets of our relationship with Him. But that stepping into requires a stepping out of something else. We are all invited Not because we are worthy, but because of his grace. His grace in the present moment forgives our past. So will we allow his grace in the present moment to change our future? Will we allow it to change how we see others? How we forgive others? Will we allow it to change ourselves? To say yes to God's grace means to say no to something else. The moments that shape our future are the present moments where we decide what we're going to do with our past. Will we be bound by it or will we step out of it? The choice is ours to make. To receive the invitation, to receive grace, is to say yes to the future that God has prepared for us. But it demands that we die to the old things that have enslaved us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for the grace we need to live in accordance with the covenants we make with you. May this grace transform us in the present moment. And may it transform others through us. May our futures be determined by the way we live according to the mercy you have shown us. Forgive us for our past, heal us in the future, and give us your grace and your guiding vision to shape us as we go forward, as we journey to the cross, where we long to die to our past, where we long to die to sin and the ways that the law condemn us. Help us to make that journey selflessly, knowing that once we do, we will be raised in a resurrection like yours. We pray all these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 365 in the United Methodist Hymnal, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. If you've made a decision of any type today, I invite you, I encourage you to come forward and share that with us. Please stand if you are able and join us in singing hymn number 365.